Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on January 27th, a debate on Brexit featuring Francis Fukuyama and David Goodhart. Coming up on the show today, our 50th episode, Roosevelt Montas, Senior Lecturer in American Studies at English at Columbia, former Director of its Centre for the Core Curriculum, and author of the new book Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Uh, Roosevelt, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So congratulations on the new book and how did the great books change your life? Um, Well, thank you, Richard. Um, So much of my sense of self um, got constructed and sorted out through my reading and engagement with the so-called great books and and in conversation around the great books. Um, one of the really central points in my vision of liberal education around the great books is they, they require conversation. They are points of connection between minds. The issues in the great books are alive and speak to us. And they are, they are as, as prompts for exploration for clarification, for understanding. And that happens best in the context of conversation. So I came to the United States as a, just before formally becoming a teenager, so at the age of 12, um, not speaking English, having grown up in a rural village in the Dominican Republic, um, to New York City um, under very difficult material circumstances, poverty and kind of dislocation, uh, marginalization in in this new world that we found ourselves in with a with my mother who was a single mother and my brother um, and through kind of series of uh, fortunate turns in my life ended up at Columbia uh, for college at Columbia College um, in the city here in, in New York where I encountered its core curriculum which is a often called a great books curriculum uh, where you read um, something like the traditional Western canon. Uh, you also study art and music. But, but that experience of, um, it was my first immersion into American culture, you know, that, that peculiar slice of American culture that might have ended up as, as first-year students at Columbia College in the, in the early 90s. Um, but that was my first immersion to, to American culture and also my first moment of... Um, having to sort out for myself who I was, um, what my life would be like, what my life was like, what it meant to be an immigrant, what it meant to be an American. Was I an American? Um, what my relationship with with religion was, etc. Just a very fundamental um, configuring of my sense of self. And that happened very much in conversation and mediated, kind of midwifed through my reading and discussions of the of the great books. Yeah, it's really interesting at the beginning of the, the book, you make the point that this is a very personal book, but that it's also a polemical book. Uh, and part of the reason that it's polemical is because it does grapple with this very notion of the great books. I mean, what are the great books? Why are they great? And why has that concept become so controversial? So the great books, that, that name, the great books as a particular history and, and you know I, I <clears throat> before writing the book I would often just avoid avoid the name um, at Columbia 
um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I, I served as director of its Center for the Core Curriculum for um, a decade. And Columbia's core curriculum is kind of the mothership of great books. It is where the idea of general education required courses for undergraduates structured around the reading of the classics and translation in common. That's where that idea is, is uh, invented. And it's from there it goes to the University of Chicago, from there it goes to St. John's College and, and to many other programs, um, some of which still exist and, and programs have been uh, established, inspired by that idea. Um, yet Columbia I itself re stays away from, the, from, from, from describing itself as a great books course, um, in part because um, it's not only books. You, the program includes art and music, um, but also because the great books acquired a kind of um, status, uh, kind of there was a, a great books movement that advanced the idea of a somewhat rigid list of Western classics that were uh, presented and, uh, and, and kind of put on a pedestal as the cultural capital, as the books that mattered, as the things that gave one um, the status and uh, standing to participate in, in high culture. So there was a kind of elitist and, and, and there was an arm of it that was sort of a commercial venture. Um, so, the, so the term great books uh, became especially around the 80s, uh, kind of the, a, a lightning rod in the culture wars. You were either for the great books or you were against the great books. Um, and even today, uh, the term carries a lot of ideological baggage. But to put it simply, um, the great books refers to works often um, canonical, so many of them from the past, that have had very fundamental a very fundamental impact on the way that the contemporary world has come to be. Um, our institutions, our politics, our values, our norms, our category, aesthetic categories, ethical norms uh, have been shaped, they have a history, and they have been shaped by great debates and evolution of ideas that are captured in, in works of, of literature, philosophy, written works, artistic works. And, um, the great books approach is, is, is the idea that this kind of repository, this, uh, as it were, archive of um, touch points in, that, in the debate evolution of our contemporary world um, are um, a suitable and powerful instrument for general education at the college level. Um, so the great books ultimately is this, this body of work that we inherit and which some schools put, put at the center of their general education curriculum. And I think that's one of the reasons why the personal approach that you've taken in the book is, is so interesting because this almost seems to me to be a classic example of show, not tell. You literally show us the impact that studying these books had on you, that it's, it's reading them, but it's also being in the class with your peers, observing them. So you're, I'm studying my peers, you say, uh, as well as the books of the core curriculum. But it is about this notion of self-reflection. You have this wonderful phrase uh, where you say that reading these books and what what happened to you was not so much of the turning on of a light bulb, but like the dawning of a day. The experience of liberal education is is very hard to um, it's very hard to, to to explain. You know, there are 
there are lots of books, some of which have been very influential in my own kind of intellectual development that make the case for liberal education. They are very powerful arguments um, and very compelling presentations. But one of the problems, one of the kind of limitations of exhortatory, persuasive um, argument about the liberal education is that the thing is such an experiential um, uh, phenomenon. I compare it to the experience of reading a novel. Um, reading a novel can be, you know, profoundly transformative. It can it can illuminate your own life. It can it can trigger uh, uh, an expansion of your of your horizons of yourself of your of your capacity to understand the world in a way that that very few, maybe no other uh, genre can do. But that power that a novel has cannot be kind of extracted and condensed and summarized. So if you read the Cliff's Notes, the Spark Notes, or the Wikipedia entry or something of a novel, the plot summary, you won't get it. It cannot do that because the power of the novel comes from the experience of kind of going through the the evolution of with the characters entering their their inner lives and seeing the gradations of uh, their own development and growth and grappling with the with the social reality etc it is that kind of immersion and that experiential immersion that does the work of the novel so liberal education is similar in that it, it you can't abstract summarize um, the, it, its meaning, its power, its significance, and then deliver it in a in summary form. Deliver it as a as an argument. So, when I sat down to write this book, whose really ultimate mission is to make the case for the value of liberal education and and the central role it ought to play in any undergraduate education, um, it seemed to me that my challenge was to try to illustrate, try to draw in the reader into something like the experience that I had um, to give the reader a kind of experiential sense of the power of a liberal education. And um, the best way to do that was to talk about my own life because I happened to have uh, had a kind of some ways an unusual life in that I, I, I've traveled such a long cultural, socioeconomic, intellectual distance from where I grew up. Um, so in some sense, it was a good, a, a good case to, uh, to, show, to showcase, a good, a good instance of showcasing what a liberal education can do for an individual's self-understanding and relationship to the world. So it is, it is a profoundly personal book. In some ways, it's a memoir. But I, I really do feel that that is the most um, effective way of making the case for liberal education. And, of course, liberal education has had worthy champions throughout the ages, from the ancients like Aristotle and Cicero uh, to Malcolm X, Virginia Woolf and W.E.B. Du Bois. But uh, you use four champions um, as the core of your book, um, St. Augustine, Plato, Gandhi uh, and Freud. Why, why did you pick these four? In some ways, the choice is idiosyncratic. In some, in some, in, in some sense... Uh, these books, reading them when I did, um, with the kind of the priors that I brought into that reading, um, the developmental moment in which I read them, had 
very decisive impacts on my life. So in that way, it's um, idiosyncratic. You know, if somebody else reflected on how the great books impacted and shaped their lives, they might come up with, with four different authors. And um, so there isn't anything about these four authors that makes them, you know, the best or the, the, the right ones. Or I don't make any kind of generalizable claim about their, their specific um, outstanding uh, value in, in the canon. Um, yet there is something, um, and this, this is in retrospect that, I, that, I've, that I've come to see this, that one thing that puts these four authors in the same basket, as it were, is their resolute, determined commitment to self-exploration to looking at themselves and trying to clarify their inner lives, trying to understand the world with reference to their, um, their internal um, self-consciousness, right? To, to, with reference to um, some, some inner sense of who they are and how the world impacts them. Um, and one of the things that all four of them arrive at is that, that, that the self turns out to be a, a huge mystery, that, that you go to look at yourself and what you, you don't find a static, permanent, stable, definable, calculable, transparent entity. But what you find is a, uh, a kind of terra incognita, uh, a mysterious place, uh, a place that's always surprising you. And a place where that must be explored with with absolute humility, um, with absolute kind of sense of, of wonder and, and open mind. So, in retrospect, it seemed to me that part of why these particular authors had such a such an impact on me is because they gave me tools, they gave me a vocabulary, they gave me a model for um, looking with within myself, uh, a model for a kind of life that would be oriented towards uh, self-examination and introspection. And it's interesting. I mean, there are two ancients, two moderns, one African, two Europeans, one Indian. So there's plenty of diversity chronologically and geographically. But it, but it is interesting that you don't include any Hispanic champions of the tradition, and there are no mm -hmm. women among your four champions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been it's been pointed out, and and you know, when I was um, kind of organizing the book, uh, my wife was the first person to point out that uh, they were all all guys or all, all males. Um, and um, again, the, the two things two things I would say about about that one is that it it does reflect again this kind of idiosyncratic uh, impact that these that, that that these books happen to have had in my life. But secondly, is that it does give us a faithful reflection of the fact that the canon, the great books, are dominated by, by, by males. And uh, they're dominated by males because um, the tools of intellectual production, access to the literacy practices, the scholarly traditions that equip an individual to, to enter the conversation and, and to write the kinds, of, the kinds of book that end up in the canon, were dramatically, sometimes um, coercively, limited to males. So there is a lesson there to be to be seen, to be grappled with about the shape of our past. And you know, my approach is to look at at the past and try to to take it, understand it, criticize it, um, uh, examine it um, for for what it is, rather than simply 
um, you know, avert my eyes from it and imagine that, well, the past uh, was equitable or the, the past did value the contributions of non-males. No, that we, we have to um, make sense and grapple with the past as it is. Um, there, uh, so, so, so it reflects that. It reflects the fact that, that the canon is dominated until, you know, until the 19th century you begin to get an, uh, an opening and so that any, um, any construction of the, of the canon um, from the second half of the 19th century to the present is going to, to be much more gender balanced. It's going to include much more diversity, pretty much of every sort. Um, the other thing I would say is that one of the great revelations of, of my education is that some of the writers that had the most profound impact on me did not do so by speaking to my particular experience as a kind of ethnic, cultural, minor minority subject in the United States. Um, you know, Socrates spoke to me profoundly, not because we had shared a, a lineage, a blood or, or, or uh, any kind of direct cultural lineage. He spoke to me because Socrates is engaged with, matter, with matters, issues that are relevant to our, to our condition of humanity. Um, and that has been a great lesson for me because, um, well, not, not to digress too far, but I grew up in the Dominican Republic and I'm a, I'm a person of color. Um, my, my, the tone of my skin is, is decidedly uh, brown. Um, so in the United States, I register as a minority. I read as a, as a, as a discriminated and, and uh, marginalized group, not in the Dominican Republic. I did not grow up with a sense of myself as a minority, with a sense of myself as, as somehow being limited and constrained by my, my, my race or my, or, or my ethnicity. Um, and, and, and that has had a really profound impact in the way that I have absorbed and related to the, the kind of politics of identity in the United States. Um, when I arrived at college, there was all this expectation and, and a kind of pressure, a kind of, um, it was the first time where I was seen first as an ethnic, as an ethnic subject, where I, where I was expected to have certain uh, political opinions, certain likes and dislikes, certain affiliations and affinities on campus. I was supposed to be interested in particular kinds of, of courses, etc., all based on uh, on the color of my skin, and and that that was very odd to me, and and I immediately began to resist it. I immediately began to to feel that I was being, there was an attempt to reduce my identity, into um, into some superficial category that, well, in the United States it's not that superficial. In the United States, indeed, millions of people have been. Uh, confined and boxed in by that identity. But that, that was not my sense of myself. So it, it, it gave me a, a kind of, um, on the one hand, an openness to connecting with the great works through lenses other than that ethnic identity. And uh, on the other hand, um, it, it caused a kind of resistance to look for affirmation of that identity um, in in the intellectual influences that that I ended up um, embracing, 
Yeah, it was quite interesting. I was very struck as a as a reader that actually class in many ways seemed more important to your argument than race. That, for example, you mentioned Socrates there. You talk about your own background, but also working with high school students from the poorest communities and about how Socrates spoke to you and, and still speaks to them, that his dignity, his bravery, that this is something that transcends material conditions because ultimately um, he's writing about and you're writing about integrity and self-respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I have kind of adopted as a, as a kind of calling or, or mission or, or maybe it has adopted me, but I, I do a lot of work and feel extraordinarily committed to bringing the, the, the intellectual, cultural, cognitive tools that a great books education facilitates to populations that have been traditionally excluded from them, from, from, from those tools, from access to that kind of education. And that means very largely low-income people. Um, in the United States, and especially in New York, that coincides very strongly with racial minorities and immigrants. So um, every summer I teach uh, high school students, rising seniors who are from low-income households and the first in their families who aspire to go to college, um, I teach them a course in, roughly speaking, great books um, on, on questions of, of, of politics. The course is called Freedom and Citizenship. So we begin with Plato and we read Aristotle's Politics and we read Thucydides and um, we read Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and... and um, Part of what I'm, what drives me to do that work is to empower these students and give these students a, a vision of themselves as people who are part of this conversation. So often I find that students show up in my classroom, those students, with a sense of themselves as kind of passive observers, victims in some, in some cases, of forces in the world that are beyond them, that they can, that they can hardly uh, grasp and that they can... Um, hardly imagine impacting. And, and part of what I'm trying to do with the course by equipping them with the, uh, a toolbox, a, a conceptual toolbox through which to penetrate and crack kind of that social reality, but also through which to impact that social reality. And it is this tradition, it is these books, it is these are the, the kind of building blocks of our, of our, social, um, of our social reality. Um, and as you said, what I find that it does for them is something very similar than what it did for me, which is to give them access to a source of self-worth, a source of dignity, a source of confidence that is not bound by their material limitations. And some of these students like me end up going to elite universities and find themselves surrounded by peers that are far better uh, formally educated than they, that have many more resources than them, that have access to uh, networks that they don't have, and this um, taste that I hope they have, they have, they have acquired this this um, window through which they have looked gives them um, an anchor point, gives them a, a way to contextualize and um, put in, in in put in its right place those. Uh, 
incidental inherited advantages that that their peers may have and that they themselves lack and that in many ways this is this is a very practical thing it's not just about being able to quote from milton's paradise lost that as you say the tradition is particularly important for students from low income families because it helps to steer them away from what you describe as careers of servitude uh, into which they so often find themselves pushed yeah, there is a, a kind of pernicious um, framing of the role of college for low-income first-generation students, the sense that you know college is a uh, financial investment for them. It is their way to get out of poverty. It is their way to, it is the, the ladder of, 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 of uh, economic, economic success. And therefore, and this is where the error comes, Therefore, they should be steered into practical fields, whether it's in, in technology or in science or in business, that their focus should be on, on skills and, and competencies that are going to secure their financial future. Um, that is a huge mistake because what that translates into is, as you say, a, a, a servile education, an education in um, knowing how to do what you're told, an education, an education that is focused not on the whys, and, uh, and kind of the deep questions that any, that really any leader, any, any person at the forefront of any field has to grapple with, but they are, they're focused in, on, 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 on pra practicalities. Um, and part of what I argue in the book is that it has been a failure of higher education to force a choice like that on students, that when you get to college, you have to choose whether you're going to be an engineer or an art historian. Whereas what we need to do is to create a structure of higher education where the engineer also has a liberal education, where the engineer doesn't need to forego uh, practical education in order to get a liberal education. We need to present and organize liberal education as the foundation, as the prerequisite, as the uh, anchor of all kinds of education, whether it's a practical education or a scholarly education, but it should be available to all, um, so we need to we need to we need to eliminate the opportunity cost for our low-income, first-generation college attendees. Um, of, of a liberal education. Yeah, and it's interesting because you flip the traditional argument or the, the criticism that somehow this is a bastion of elitism. In contrast, you say, no, this is actually a powerful tool to subvert elitism. We know that a liberal education matters. And how do we know that? Because generation after generation after generation of elites send their children to universities just like Columbia. That's right. Um, you know, th there's a, this phrase that's associated with, with uh, George W. Bush. Um, perhaps he used it while he was still governor of, of Texas, but the soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, it's an apt phrase, and I see it infiltrating, so often infiltrating a posture that says um, these often urban, um, often of color, um, students need to be given um, an education that is relevant to them, both in its practicality, but also they need to see themselves in the curriculum. They need to see people who have had the same kinds of experiences. They have had uh, authors who share their ethnic and cultural background. Um, and, and, and there is, you know, behind that there is often a very 
good intention. You know, behind that there is a there is a, an effort to reach the students where they are and to turn them on and to kind of light them up, and and that's all good. But so often underneath that there is a kind of intellectual condescension. There is, in fact, so much underneath that a uh, a sense that that these students' capacities are limited, that they cannot extend themselves in the same way that uh, a white suburban student can extend themselves. You know, I'm married to a Midwestern white woman. I kind of grew up upper middle class. Um, Dante is no closer to her than it is to me. Homer is no closer to her than it is to me, nor is Rousseau and Locke. The idea that somehow Rousseau and Locke and Homer and Dante and Shakespeare are accessible and appropriate for her in a way that they're not for me because I'm poor from an urban area, it's, a, it, it, it's absolutely, uh, A, condescending, and B, detrimental, um, damaging to, to those students who are denied or steered away from that, um, to use an, an old expression, that form of cultural capital. And it's, I mean, it, you raise a really interesting point there, isn't it? Because you take somebody like Aristotle, for example, I mean, chronological diversity is something that so often just gets pushed to the side in this in this very debate um and that's that's a there's a kind of um a conflation of the argument for diversity and the argument for presentism so often people are saying you know we want a diverse curriculum we want a curriculum that is representative of our contemporary diversity gender race class religion um and then you say, wait, do you mean that you want a curriculum that is focused on, you know, the, the post-World War II period? In other words, a contemporary curriculum. I say, no, 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 that's not what I'm arguing. I'm just arguing for a diverse curriculum. Um, and I say, well, if you, if you are going to have a curriculum that is diverse chronologically, if you're going to have a curriculum that tries to take in the sweep of our broad and deep past, then you are going to have to... Um, uh, compromise the forms of diversity that are evident to us today. So we have to find a way to balance them, right? We have to find a way to say, um, once we try to take in the whole picture, that is, once we are committed that our education is going to expose students not just to the present, to the present, but to the entire span of uh, written um, intellectual history that's available to us, then we're going to, A, have to acknowledge that much of that is going to lack diversity, but B, recognize that that past that lacks the diversity creates the conditions, intellectual, cultural, ethical conditions for us to come to value the diversity and for the diversity in w that, that we relish today and inhabit today to emerge. That is, the values, ideas, in the name of which we argue for diversity were forged in this past that was not diverse. And we need to understand that and we need to, 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 uh, to study it. We need to accept it and, uh, and give it its rightful place in our consideration of the world. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, that's one of the things that makes it so difficult, isn't it? That, you know, many of the critics of the the tradition that you're kind of describing talk about uh, the problems in which, the, the way in which this tradition perhaps has silenced racial minorities, women, and so on, um, that it's closely tied to imperialism and racist agendas. And yet, on the other hand, it's something that produces the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, 
the industrial revolution, what today we describe as modernity and so on. So it's also a tradition that's put in the hard yards and grappling with those two different things is, is actually pretty tricky, isn't it? It is tricky. It is much harder than, than, than to simply reduce it to one or the other, right? To simply look at the tradition as, uh, as a tradition of the, of the triumph of, of justice and the triumph of reason and equality and, and, and beauty, um, a, a kind of uh, easily chauvinistic view of, of the Western tradition as, as the, the, the torchbearer of everything that is good in humanity, uh, much easier to do that or to do the other thing, which is to say this is a tradition of exploitation and exclusion and domination, and to read and, and, and value that tradition is to be complicit in that history of, of, of exploitation and dehumanization. Um, and, and those are much more um, Kind of intellectually comfortable positions to hold. Um, they are. They both, in some way, um, make make thinking unnecessary. In some way, they both obviate critical thinking. Uh, they do the thinking for you. Much more difficult. But actually, what education is the actual uh, value, uh, educa educational value of studying this tradition is to see the complexity. It's to see both sides. It's to recognize. Aristotle, both as a great genius of the past, who have who has who has given um, our civilization some of its, some of, some of its most important intellectual foundations, and see him as some someone who was utterly wrong in his estimation of the capacities of women, who was utterly wrong in his evaluation of the nature of some individuals as being. Uh, being slaves by nature, etc., to take both of those things at the same time. And you know, that, that capacity to see the complexity and the multi-dimension of ideas and thinkers is the mark of an educated person. And we need it for all kinds of things. You know, we needed to think about our contemporary politics, which is so often a, a negotiation, a balancing of contradictory uh, contradictory. Uh, costs and benefits of, of values. It is, it is important in thinking about, if you live in America, about our own past. It's important to, in understanding how Jefferson could write that all men are created equal and put this country in the foundation, in, uh, on a foundation that's committed to human equality and at the same time be a slaveholder and refuse to you know, emancipate his slaves. So how do you put those together? We have to put those together. It is in those tensions that we live. Um, so, you know, th this 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 education in the complexity, nuance, and messiness of the past is really critical for our capacity to uh, navigate our contemporary political and social situation. So the book is Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. It's written by my guest, Roosevelt Montas, and published by Princeton University Press. Uh, but for now, Roosevelt, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.